This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. So we're joined by Christine Douglas-Williams. Christine, thank you so much for your time this evening. Peter, thanks for having me. It's a privilege. Great to have you on. And we are doing this a a few days before. Obviously, you're across the water uh, over there in Canada. So our our diaries matched up a few days before. But can I just give an introduction uh, for our viewers? You're obviously over in in Canada, uh, quite a number of the publications you've written for, they will have, our viewers will have come across. But you are a nine times international award-winning journalist and television producer conducting over 1,700 live interviews. You're a past federally appointed director with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and a former appointee to the Office of Religious Freedom and Foreign Affairs. You've authored hundreds of blogs, articles, and columns, and your writings have appeared in Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Jewish Press, Breaking Israel News, and the list goes on. You're a daily writer at Jihad Watch, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and has authored a monograph for the Center for Security Policy in Washington as part of Civilization Jihad series, entitled Fired by the Canadian government for criticizing Islam, multicultural Canada. And that is a whole area that maybe we'll touch on another time. But as a former uh, on the beat political and crime news reporter and newsroom editor, you've worked as regular national columnist and news analyst with Metro News, owned by the Toronto Star. And you're a senior advisor to the Hudson Institute in New York. Christine, could I? I've touched on some of the areas, but can I ask, as we do with all of our guests, for you to just take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself to our viewers? Okay, I'm not the best on air talking about myself, but I'll do my best here. As you said. <laughs> I, I, for, I'll, I'll, okay, you pretty much covered it in terms, uh, mm. in terms of my work. Uh, if you're going to be looking for me in social media, you're not going to find it. I, I gave up on that a long time ago. I have a family. It, it gets a bit time consuming. Let's put it that way. I've also been on the board of governors for the Gatestone Institute. Mm. So my writings could be find there, found there as well. But um, a lot of my writings today are on Jihad Watch. And I do work behind the scenes. The second book, Fired by the Government of Canada for Criticizing Islam, that was me, by the way, because I was fired Hmm. for discussing political Islam. And my writings on Jihad Watch, which Dalton, this is another topic for another day with anti-Islamophobia motion M103, that primarily. Plus, I had made a speech in in Iceland alongside Robert Spencer, and I mentioned um, about the importance, and this is what really made it um, difficult for particularly, I would say, the Islamic supremacists surveilling mosques. Because my feeling is, if I was in a church and the leader of a church and I knew that there was a problem internationally with Christianity when it came when it came to um, oppressing others. Like we know that there's a genocide going on in Africa and in mm-hmm. parts of the Middle East, and and there was a problem when it comes to blasphemy laws, whatever the, the the range of problems that we see in the news today, beheadings and so forth regarding um, Islam, jihad, and so forth. I would say by all means, I realize that there is a problem on our soil, and I don't want to be implicated in that because I'm innocent. Therefore. I open the door to you. Anytime you feel you need to come in and surveil, you come in and surveil because I have nothing to hide. 
there has been huge resistance and this victimology approach to we can't discuss anything um, about political Islam. We can't condemn blasphemy laws. We can't talk about the victims of Muslim rape gangs we see going on in Britain. And I find that atrocious. This is what Jihad Watch covers. And whenever you ask people that label Jihad Watch, what is it exactly that was written that you oppose that's wrong? They could never tell you because there really isn't any. It's an agenda. So I was fired by the government of Canada. I was appointed by Stephen Harper government, the conservative government, but I was fired by the Trudeau government. And that in itself is an issue that you would find if you just type in my name, it just comes right up. So that's a little bit about me. You won't find me again on these social media, but I told you where you could find my writings. And I think I'm ready to begin there, Peter. Sounds good. Particularly talking about my book, The Challenge of Modernizing Islam, which is indeed a challenge. Absolutely. Now that uh, on Jihad Watch, obviously you're one of the main authors there and are putting stuff up there daily. So people can go to jihadwatch.org and find you on there. So I'd encourage people as I recommended last week with Robert Spencer to encourage people to go in and make use of Jihad Watch as it's a resource that I have used for the last 12 years in my understanding of Islam. So thank you for your input in writing for Jihad Watch regularly, Christine. Now, the book I've been going through and I have got another probably 50 pages, haven't managed to go through it. Is Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I I really enjoyed it, but it's The Challenge of Modernizing Islam. And it is in two parts. The first part is conversations that you've had with moderates, with reformers, those who are uh, looking at how their faith of Islam fits into the world today. And then the second half is, is your commentary, your summary, looking at that and and trying to put that into perspective for the readers. And um, I'll, I'll touch on how I find the book, but can I just first of all ask you, what motivated you to write such a book, which is not a a book that is a regular occurrence on, on bookshelves, and there are many different views on Islam. This is a very interesting book in that discussion on Islam and how it fits into the West. So what the challenge of modernizing Islam, what persuaded you to put pen to paper? There were two particular points that I remember, two occurrences that inspired the book. First of all, I was rather interested in the topic because I was running a daily live call-in show at what was called CTS TV in Burlington. It's changed now to Yes TV. Although it's a Christian organization, the the umbrella organization, this was a sister station and I worked in the secular aspect of it. So I was very interested in the topic in itself because I was covering the day-to-day occurrences. And I saw this building. I I saw 9-11 happen. I saw Mm. greater issues coming up because... Nobody was paying attention to Islam before 9-11. It was just deemed to be, well, some other mysterious religion we don't know about. So I had quite a few Muslims on the show, those Mm. who would today be categorized as Islamists, and that's a term that I would like us to discuss later on, and those who would would be described as moderates. And in my experience, the ones who I now see as along the moderate end, they were saying things that nobody else was saying. You may not always agree with some of the views you hear. Um, I know Tarek Fatah, for one, can ruffle a lot of feathers, but he was he was on my show and he was saying things like, you guys have no idea, and he was saying this live, what is being taught in mosques. Hmm. They're, they're cursing Christians and Jews at Friday prayer every week. At first I thought, this couldn't be true. I mean, you're looking at a time frame here. We now know what is happening. Investigations have been done. 
And that piqued my interest even more. What is happening here? We saw it as Christians are Christians. There are different types, Muslims are Muslims. But this piqued my interest. How could somebody come out and say such a thing? It sounded almost impossible to be going on on our territory, on our in our Western, when I say territory, countries. But lo and behold, as we found out, most of them are. So that piqued my interest. Another one was I had gone on a Simon Wiesenthal trip to um, to see the Holocaust sites. And my roomie was a Muslim lady mm. who stopped going to mosque for that very reason. She said she had a scandal in the mosque because she happened to show a piece of her fringe under the head covering. Mm. And her, her words to them was, screw you. And she just left and never returned. So this is what really piqued my curiosity. And most, a lot of your um, viewers will know the name Daniel Pipes with yep. the Middle East Forum. He was a guest on my show previously, and I, I was very interested in this topic. And I, and I just said, you know, Daniel, I'd, I'd like to write a book one day, um, just investigating, doing some interviews with some of the moderates that I've come encounter with. And because they're saying things that I think is, and this was way back in 2010, mm. that isn't quite understood. So th that was my inspiration to start that investigation. And one thing led to a next. And he said, okay, we will commission it eventually because I went through proposal, the whole bit. And the book was, it went through. It went through. It passed the scrutiny and, and the Middle East Forum and Dr. Daniel Pipes commissioned the book. And from there, he was the one that suggested do face-to-face -face interviews because I had in mind just doing interviews like people do today in um, email. Yeah. But I, I, that was the best idea because I received the authenticity of these individuals that agreed to that book. They were under a tape recorder. They talked, they, they exposed their feelings, their emotions, their difficulties in discussing the issues they have with the Quran or with the Hadiths. And by the way, none of them really um, believe in mm. the Hadith. Um, which again, I know will come under scrutiny by a large range of people. So in sum, that's what inspired it. And that's what led to the writing of that book. And it just kept on going and it became more complex as I wrote it. It became a headache. I dropped it for a couple of years and then I picked it back up and finally it was published. Okay. Uh, at the beginning, um, I'll, uh, we discussed different questions to come out of this and there are a lot more than that we have time for this evening. But um my uh, the at the beginning there are two phrases moderates and reformers and my perspective on reading certainly the the first half was of individuals who are maybe born in a family that is a muslim family and as they've grown up as they're living in the west or a different culture they're trying to reconcile that personal belief they have that this is true with uh, how that fits into the West, how that fits into freedoms, how that fits into democratic systems. And certainly as, I mean, as a, as a Christian, it's, I can't imagine the, that struggle they're going in internally. Um, for me as a Christian, my Christianity fits in perfectly with, uh, with any culture. Uh, and yet these Muslims are having that huge struggle. Uh, did did that come over as you were interviewing them, or am I reading it incorrectly? No, you read it. You read it bang on, and, and I really want to congratulate you for that because that what you mentioned there was the reason when I really got into 
that book and I said, look, I, I've got to finish it by this date. It caused me pause. I had to spend an extra week just on that topic alone trying to decipher because the book's original name was intended to be The Challenge of Islamic Reform. Okay. And I realized in my interviews, there was, and I'm going to explain it here because it's very important, a difference in the concept between moderate mm. and reformist. And I, I'm glad that you appreciate the the backstory of, of these Muslims that agree. They really put themselves out there, first of all. Mm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that they grew up in countries, one in particular, um, I won't get into because um, he revealed more about it um, privately, but he has seen a lot of um, deaths within his family at the hands of jihadists, which is just not his way. There, these individuals came from, in general, came from families that were peaceful. In the Muslim countries they came from, the families were peaceful. They looked to their Muslim um, tenets, their, their, their Muslim scriptures, if you will, for comfort, for peace, and they found it in their own way. Just like you look at the Old Testament and they call for stonings for adulterers and various sins. They call for the men to never shave their beard, for, for certain ways to clean, um, for women and so forth. That is no longer practice. It's not even looked at. It doesn't mean you're any less a Jew because of it. Mm. it there are Muslims who choose not to do that. And we'll get more into that, too, when, when it comes to the influence of the Sharia, but not right now. And these individuals grew up with inspirations from, from the Quran. Their families in general, they didn't go by the Hadith, they went by the Quran because mm. that was deemed to be the, the, the word that they, they looked to. They looked to for inspiration. As um, Bernard Lewis said, the jury is out when it comes to um, any particular Islam, when it comes to the individual. That many Muslims in villages everywhere you go from, from the corners of the earth, they have their own experience with it. And if you happen to be a Muslim that experienced the death of your family members, your family members at the hands of jihad, you're going to oppose it. You're not going to support jihad. And they don't. It doesn't mean that you didn't get inspiration. There, mm. there are huge psychological and personal beliefs here. There's culture, there's family that one cannot just see in black and white because it isn't. It involves faith. It involves psychology. And those are never black and white. And it's not up to us in the West to say, well, you shouldn't. It is up to us to protect our constitutions and our democracy. But when one chooses to believe a certain way or see things a certain way, it, it's not up to us to interfere in the private psychology and spiritual being of a person when it comes to religious rights and freedoms, which is our star quality in the West, actually. So, yeah. so in dealing now, and I'll deal with it very quickly, with the moderate versus the reformist, yeah. I started to realize a difference. First of all, and this is logical for any lay person to understand. When you look at a word reform, the first thing you have to do, you must do, is recognize that there is something in need of reform. If a Muslim comes out and says, look, I, I don't believe that there's anything to reform, then why are you calling yourself a reformist? Mm. There are moderates out there that say, look, I believe in peace, I believe in democracy, I support Israel, I, I believe I'm, I'm no threat to you. And I, 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 I've suffered in terms of my own family. And I really believe that let's just leave the problematic verses, throw them in the dustbin of history and they're, antiqu they're antiquated. And I don't want to follow that. But when you call yourself a reformist, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. And you look at a person like Dr. Tawfiq Hamid. He has actually written in Arabic a reformist Quran, because his vision is to see a friendly version, an updated version of, of, the, um, of the Islamic faith. And if you look at 
someone like Dr. Um, Tof, um, not, um, Sheikh, Sheikh Subi Mansour, mm. he was at Al-Azhar University. He was eventually kicked out of Al-Azhar mm. because he established the Quran a sect, which was not in keeping with Al-Azhar. And he believes that he believes in Sharia, but not the brand of Sharia we see. Fine. That's their countries. And it is time that they start honoring human rights for the benefit of everybody. So you see a lot of differences between a reformist and a moderate. The moderate chooses, okay, I'm moderate. I believe in democratic freedoms and I choose to go on that way. The reformist wants to see Islam reformed to, to modernity. However, if you're defining reformist in terms of the other direction, there are those within the Islamic community that want to see reform back to the seventh century with Muhammad. Mm. And there are actually those who call themselves moderate of the Muslim Brotherhood, because that was one of the the goals of Al-Bana, who established the Muslim Brotherhood, to become more institutional, to become more friendly, to put a friendly face on Islam and make it look better. And everything doesn't have to be bloody jihad. However, with that said, the Muslim Brotherhood's documents state that the main component is jihad, bloody jihad included, and that's why you have organizations like Hamas. But now you have a stealth version of jihad, which is very operational in the West, and you have a violent version, and even with the Muslim Brotherhood, we see it in Egypt. Once they start getting um, more and more recognized and emboldened, they become increasingly violent because jihad is martyrdom. Jihad is the ultimate sacrifice in the way of Allah. So that kind of mod, um, moderate is not moderate at all. My book was intended to talk about moderate consistent with democracy. These these kinds of individuals that are hooked up to the Muslim Brotherhood have no place, in my humble opinion, in Western society because they are aspiring to change Western society. Investigations and polls have been done, one by the Center for Security Policy. Mm. Other polls have been done globally, even in the West, that showed that Muslims respect the Sharia. They want to institute the Sharia. And I'm talking the mainstream population. It does not believe, mean that they believe in jihad, but some would argue, well, then you would have to because you believe in the Sharia. Well, they don't. This is a religious belief. I, I, if I don't believe in a long beard or I don't believe in stoning people, it doesn't mean I'm not, but they don't believe in that. But they do believe in the Sharia, which has absolutely no place in a Western democracy by way of its rights and freedoms and by way of how it views blasphemy and offense to Islam. So I think now, I, I hope I've made it clear, the difference between moderate and the difference between reformists as outlined in the book, The Challenge of Modernizing Islam. No, absolutely. Where does, where does then the term Islamism fit in? Obviously, you mentioned uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, which is a different view or understanding of Islam. So where does the term Islamism or that group fit into this debate? I'll tell you, there are many watching that will never use the word Islamism. The word Islamism is generally not used on Jihad Watch, and I'll tell you why. Because every organization has a key focus, mm. and the focus of Jihad Watch is to help people to understand what, what Islam has been throughout 1,400 years, not to water it down, to yeah. show what is going on with Christians in the Middle East, to show the larger institutions. Let's face it, Iran is a keeper of Shia Islam. The, the, um, the Ayatollah is, is the one that is esteemed to be actually the Marja, which is the mm. highest authority in Shia Islam. Only the Quran goes higher 
than the Marja. And this is the authority that Iran, that we tend to see in the West as a, a crazy state, but it holds a very high authority. It is the keeper of Shia Islam. That is not to say that every Shia holds to it or believes in it, like I've made clear, but it is institutionally the keeper of Shia Islam. And again, as we note, that there are many people living in Iran that are opposed to the Iranian regime, but this institutionally is the keeper of Shia Islam. We look at Saudi Arabia, that is the keeper of Sunni Islam, and it is under Wahhabism. We need to look at this, despite what we might see. Um, we still have the funding internationally of Saudi Arabia mm. in, in, in virtually every Muslim country that we see the, these Wahhabist mosques. Who do we think is funding them? It's, it's Saudi money is funding them. Now we have Turkey funding it. We have Iran funding it. These are the institutions of what Shia and Sunni Islam are, is. And there is no ifs, buts, or in-betweens, we know that, that is, those are the keepers of Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. Mm. And we also have Al-Azhar University, which is the enlightened university globally for Sunni beliefs. And this is the kind of thing that we see coming out of Al-Azhar. As Udi Jasser put it in the book, normative Islam is the kind of Islam that we see coming out of, of um, Al-Azhar. This mm. is what we see as Islamism. So Islamism is actually normative Islam. But so this is why Jihad Watch will not use that word Islamism, because it starts to confuse the discourse. It starts to be, well, what do you mean by Islamism? What do you, you mean by Islamism? Jihad Watch is dedicated to the institution of what is going on with Islam, how it is infiltrated by the Muslim Brotherhood, by many streams, the West. Um, and this is why it is not used there to confuse the discourse. When I use it, for example, I use it to make a quick differentiation between mm. those Muslims who don't deserve such a label as Islamism or as Islamic supremacism or as any other label that erodes democratic rights and freedoms and equality. It's a distinction that I choose to make when I use it. So Islamist is one that adheres to the tenets of Islamic law, Sharia, and doctrine. Mm. Islam is still Islamism. That is normative Islam. But when you talk about a regular Muslim, for instance, if I'm talking to you, if I, if I want a quick reference, I'll say Islamism or I'll say, I'll, mm. or I'll say the, this person adheres to Islam. But make no mistake about it. Normative Islam is Islamism. You look at the institutions, you look at the countries, yes. It does not mean that there are those Muslims who do not aspire to reform. It does not, when you look, for instance, at the Ahmadiyyas, the Ahmadis are a persecuted group. They will tell you that there are no violent verses and hate verses in the Quran, but there is. But the bottom line is this. If the world was full of that brand of Islam, mm. They'll be left to their own. We wouldn't have a problem. We wouldn't have had 9-11. There are peaceful people. But in terms of telling people that there aren't violent verses in the Quran, it's a big lie. Whatever book they use, maybe. But the point is, the West gets confused in all the different discourses. And that is actually an argument. There's so many different Islam that you're just trying to make it um, one Islam. Well, this is where the confusion is. For as many Muslims as they are, it's, it's how they choose to interpret it according to what sect or what belief they choose to follow. But look at the institutions. Look at Iran. Look at Saudi Arabia. Look at the Islamic states. Look at the trouble from the Muslim Brotherhood in the West. And we see that these silly conversations, which should be had, by the way, are confusing a major problem that the West needs to confront within its borders. And as a result of the confusion, the West has come to a point where it's, it's trembling in fear. We are not to say anything to offend Muslims. 
That is actually an identifying marker. Now, I made a note, which is very important, of what one of um, a couple of our people that were research that, that I researched and that I interviewed in the book had indicated, and it was very, very important because they indicate, like for instance, um, Dr. Zudi Jasser had stated in the book, normative Islam is what comes out of Al-Asar University mm. and Saudi Arabia, which is the majority of what is being taught. It needs tons of reform. And that is the direct quote. You have Urshad Manji, who was not interviewed in the book, but she's discussed. She said, she encourages unbridled freedom of expression without fear of offending others in a multicultural world. Dr. Tofi Kamid says, to illustrate the absurdity of the concepts of insults to Islam, he referenced the Bukhari, the Hadith. Mm. In his words, well, then that in itself is insulting to Islam because according to Bukhari, then Muhammad is being identified as a pedophile. So if anything is insulting to Islam, it's the Hadiths. Mm. He was trying to illustrate a very key point here. And, and this is what he, he elaborated on in the book. And then there was Jalal Zuberi, a medical doctor from, um, from Atlanta. And he said flat out his litmus test for a real moderate, he says. He, could, he defined himself as a moderate. Mm. A litmus test, he said, they must create space for dissent. Criticism is the opening of that watershed, he says, that will lead to the real change to take place in the Muslim mind. There are many moderates that, and I'm talking moderates that really do support democracy. They still get offended when you use the word Muslim instead of Islamist. Mm. I say too bad. You learn to deal with your offense. This is not our problem. And I encourage every Westerner to use what word they choose that makes them comfortable. We are not to kowtow to Christians. We're not to kowtow to Muslims. We're not to kowtow to any belief system. What we stand for is our Judeo-Christian democracy in terms of our constitutions and our democratic rights and freedoms. Whoever's offended, we are allowed to offend in our democracies. And that must never be forgotten. I was very surprised recently that your Archbishop of Canterbury came out in support of freedom of speech, despite being a leftist. He came and said, we need to support freedom of speech, given what you're facing in Britain now over the Muhammad cartoons, because if we lose that, there's no way back. So it is very important that Muslims need to learn to be offended. If a person's offended and they tell you, well, I'm offended because you didn't use this, well, it's their right. But Westerners must not fall into that. Mm. Now, if you choose to be a polite person and not use the word because you find it offense, of course, of course, but it is your choice, but you must not be intimidated when it comes to offense because that is rooted in blasphemy tenets of the Sharia. And many moderates that may not support the Sharia, they were raised in that kind of a background, so they get very offended and it's very hard to shake that belief. If you are offended, too bad. Be offended, but don't try to impose what Westerners must do, what they must say, and how they Mm. must see Islam. It is your right as a Westerner to see Islam how you choose once you don't go up there and start targeting Muslims and and making victims out of them that this is bad. And that word victim is loaded because criticizing Islam is not victimizing. Attacking somebody in the street, calling them all kinds of names is victimizing. And there are already laws in place to cater with hate in Canada. When it comes to attacking people physically, yelling at them in the streets, 
um, inciting hatred against them is a different story. If talking about the truth about Islam is inciting people to do violence, when well, those people that are doing violence and hating Muslims, they need to be dealt with to the full extent of the law, which already exists. It does not mean that everybody must be walking on pins and needles mm. so that they don't offend Muslims. This is absurd. And we are losing our freedoms and our democracy. No, absolutely. We, um, our hate speech legislation is crazy. And whenever you mentioned the Archbishop, I was thinking, oh, what, what do we have to apologize for what he said now? But maybe once a year, he does say something good. But well, that was usually, really good. <laughs> yeah, the, so once, that was his once a year moment. So he'll, he'll go back to type. But anyway, you talking about reforms and reformation, obviously in Christianity under Martin Luther, there was a reformation, a, a change in how Christians viewed some of the truths of what it meant to be a Christian. And part of that came, I guess, from the Bible being available in people's language and people being able to access and read that for themselves. So what is it possible for Islam to be reformed? Islam, first of all, is not like Christianity in terms of its book, in terms mm. of its origins, in terms of its scripture, if you put it that way. There is nowhere in the Christian New Testament that calls for any kind of violence. Yeah. Jesus is a prince of peace and God is love, period. Mm. So there's nothing to reform there. Yeah. Nothing. People, yes. And there's a distinction between people and the word. Now you look in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, let's not forget, is part of the Christian Bible as well. And there was something in need of reform in terms of behavior. You don't see people being stoned for adultery anymore. So if you look at that alone, my view is, and this is the view of reformists, this is what needs to be reformed. This is no longer acceptable. Christians do not kill at all. Now, these Christians were acting that did that historically. There were two parts to this. There was a pushback against the caliphates, which a lot of people don't recognize when it comes to the knights, but they did force conversions, which was wrong. But there also, there's also the Old Testament, which discussed violence. And yes, there are those that says there's a difference between prescriptive and, and, and situational. But still, if you want to even argue that point, there's no space to be stoning people for adultery. So even mm. if you want to look at it that way, no. So my take is, if Muslims choose to go to modernity, mm. to live according to human rights, for goodness sakes, give them the chance. Yeah. Now, we see a pattern happening in the Islamic world across the board where Muslims are starting to more and more reject what is coming out of Al-Asr, what is coming out of Iran and what is coming out of Saudi Arabia. That is good news. The hope is the time will come where they will say, you know, I'm inspired by my faith. So let me look at a person like um, 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 Hamid, Dr. Um, Tawfiq Hamid, and look at his reformist Quran and see what we could do here. Because there are those who worship in peace. And that is the hope of the reform. Now, there's a website called Al Muslia, and, and I sent my review of that book. That was an excellent book. These are real Islamic scholars. Mm. They understand the history of Islam. They speak the language. They are studied. They are what you call the material that you, that they, they know what Islam is across the board. Not because a person says they're a Muslim means that they should speak for Islam simply because, not because a person says they're a Christian means they should speak for all of Christianity. It just means that they worship 
Christianity. You might find a Christian that's doing every wrong thing in a book and calls themselves a Christian, and you find one that's almost perfect, but yet they don't know what's in the scripture. Mm. It, there is such latitude. But this particular group is not afraid to tell the truth. A lot of them are in hiding, <laughs> so they go by different. They might go by different names. Yeah. But this, these scholars talk about the Bedouin culture that has been there in Islam for 1400 years, that has ruled Islam, the immutability of the decree, you do not challenge Islam, the official closed corpus, they discuss these things. They also go back to when the, to when the Hadiths were created, 200 years after Muhammad died. A lot happens. A lot of people have gone through the exercise in elementary school where you, you stay in a line and you start a story by the time it gets to the end of the line. Ten minutes later, the whole story has changed. What happens in 200 years? It was now delivered and written through the lens of the caliphs. So in terms of what is Islam? What is it? Like, what is it really? These scholars say it is really a composite of Judaism, um, Judaism and Christianity with some of what we believe of Muhammad thrown in. So they have kind of debunked what you see in the Hadiths, which I know normative Islam, that would be considered an insult to Islam, but they confront it for what it is. And they talk about this official closed corpus. It needs to be changed. The best way for Muslims to reform is through acceptance of Western mores, which is the ability to offend. So when you look at what Islam is and whether it could be reformed, on that note, I say yes, because it tends to be, what is it? Hmm. If you look at when Muhammad was alive, what is it? 200 years later, is it the Hadiths? Is it 200 years before? What really happened then? There's some things we know. There's some things we don't know. What is it really? It's how Muslims choose to follow it in terms of history, in terms of its collective body. And right now, the collective body is what we deem Islamism, no matter what people tell you, because according to research, even Muslims in the West, that people say, well, they're mostly against jihad. Well, kind of, because they believe in the Sharia. And when, when it comes down to brass tacks, what mm. will they do when Islam is offended and they see Islam is a problem? There tends to be this, th this great pushback mm. to protect Islam, and this is ingrained in the religion. We saw what happened with Samuel Paddy. There were those across the Western world, inside the West, Muslims standing up and rather than expressing how atrocious it was to behead Paddy, some of them graced us by saying, oh, it's horrible what you did, but you offended Islam. You encouraged hate. And this is exactly what came out of Al-Azhar, the Grand Sheikh of Al-Azhar, Al-Tayyib. He came out and said, that he intends to launch a lawsuit against France for what it's doing with Islam. And he came out at first and said, it's bad what happened, but you offended Islam. Mm. This must change, and it will never change in the West with these Western leaders opening the door to immigration, letting anybody in, and refusing to accept freedom of speech, which is the cornerstone of democracy. There's no such thing as Islamophobia in the West. It doesn't belong in the West. It does not incorporate what we deem to be free. The freedom of speech. Islamophobia deals also with offense to Muslims, which has no place in Western democracy. Yes, it deals with anti-Muslim bigotry, and that needs to be dealt with just like any bigotry. But we are allowed in the West to offend Muslims, and I am tired of seeing the punitive action, people getting fired, people getting deplatformed. Basically, what they're doing is that they're executing Islamism, if we call it that here, and this is not good for reformists who really want to see Islam reform.
And this is a problem here. We have given in to Muslim Brotherhood interests. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned immigration. I want to go on that. But can I throw in uh, a question, a phrase that gets used a lot, which fits in, I think, to maybe reform or where Islam goes forward. It, Islam is a religion of peace. We hear that phrase a lot, uh, but that is a phrase which is debated. So I'm wondering how you see it, whether Islam is a religion of peace. When you could come out and tell me that the keeper, official of Sunni Islam, Saudi Arabia, and getting more and more Turkey, and Iran, Shia Islam, and the Grand, and, and um, you're, you're looking at Al-Assar, we didn't come out and say that is a religion of peace, when you could come out and say what you see across, in fact, the Islamic world, that you call peace, then I may start to, um, first of all, question your sanity. And I think that is my answer. No, it is not unequivocally, hand over fist, it is not a religion of peace. However, there are those who choose to worship in peace. And from the Ahmadiyya perspective, they practice it in peace, yes. So when you get down to the layer of people, it can be. But as an institution, when you start saying Islam is a religion of peace, then you are enshrining upon society that how can you criticize Mm. something that is a religion of peace? No. Look in the face of a Muslim parent, of, of, a, of a Christian parent that had their child murdered by a Muslim, killed because of the belief, and tell me in the name of Islam, quoting the Quran, many testimonies came forth from the Yazidis, the Yazidi girls who were being abused by ISIS, where they were reading and praying from their Islamic scriptures. And you'd look in the face of those people with your haughtiness and say, Islam is a religion of peace. Then we can talk. No, it is not a religion of peace. Can it be? Yes, but we need to dismantle these organizations. What is the chance of that happening? If you look across the Islamic world and that starts to change, right now, the um, United Arab Emirates has offered promise. We saw what Mm. happened under Donald Trump. We see regions that have some level and some measure of hope happening. So could it be? Yes, once there is once there is any hope in people, there is hope in change. So from that point of view, yes. Will that transfer to institutions where the institutions will start finding themselves watered down, start being taken over by sheer numbers, just the same way we have fears in the West of Mm -hmm. valid, because we've seen it across um, many countries where the birth rate of Muslims outdid the rest. And before you knew it, it became an Islamic territory. Well, if that happens with those who are advocating for a human rights and a friendly version of Islam, then we could start perhaps seeing that in the institutions. Right now, all you have are big lies coming out of Al-Azhar and even Saudi Arabia and other countries making it look like um, there's peace and they're willing to change. But if you look behind the scenes, Saudi Arabia is still locking up dissenters and Iran is spoken for. But out of need, economic need, we live in a, we live on a, in a, in a global society mm-hmm. where People need friends for economic purposes. There's a lot to be said for your public image. We see some of the right words coming out of these countries. But if you understand what's going on in these countries, you cannot say Islam is a religion of peace. It is not about you as an individual. It is not about the individual that wants to see Islam reformed. It is about the reality of the institution that we see today. It is about the history of the Sharia, 1400 years of it. And no, Islam is not a religion of peace. You'd mentioned about immigration, you'd mentioned about globalism, and 
in an era of globalism and open door immigration, I guess, worldwide. Um, how big is the threat of Islamization to the West? And feel free to change my question. So, yeah, is, is it a threat that we should that we are facing in the West? At the worst end, and anybody could look this up, um, if it doesn't show up on Google, because I realize sometimes the search is manipulated there, then go to DuckDuckGo or some other engine, but you would find articles that talk about the infiltration Mm. of ISIS and other hardcore jihadists into the West. And it you just need to look at the prison system in the UK. That mm. is another, those are other reports that are very key. The Islamization of the prison system, the jihad proliferation, the hate preaching throughout the mosques that we see happening and, and it's transferring to people. The, the fact that um, Britain attempted to deport a lot of jihadists, but they yeah. failed to do so. They lost track of hundreds of thousands. Need I say more? The Muslim rape gangs, it goes on and on and on. And in, a, in this kind of a climate, even the Dalai Lama came out and said that Europe is for Europeans. If you want your countries to become to become Muslim or to become African, and, and what he meant by that, he's not talking um, the, the race of Africans or the, the peaceful side of Islam. He's mm. talking about what we see going on in Islamic states and what we see in Africa, by the way, being increasingly taken over by these, uh, because there's a caliphate that they try to form, ISIS is being increasingly taken over by, and all of these um, disparate jihadist groups are joining and pledging allegiance to ISIS. So if you want Britain to become that way, and Canada and every country in the West, well, then that is the perfect recipe to -hmm. see that happen. Um, This vision of Islamic reform, uh, does it apply to just Western countries or is it other countries? And obviously immigration means you you have that movement of people all over. And the I guess the distinctions between countries begins to blur in some respect. But is that vision of Islamic reform, is that only to Western countries? This is something that is is a highly it's highly personal to the person that you're that you may be asking this question to. I believe it is extremely critical to Muslim countries. And the reason I say so is because we live in a globe and because the West cares about human rights. There is, Mm -hmm. after all, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which has long been completely violated. Now, in the West, you might ask, where's the importance of that? Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's nice. It's kind-hearted if you understand the cause. But in terms of relevance, those who are aspiring to Islamic reform in the West they're, they're regarded as apostates in these mm. countries. They're not a part of that core Islam reforming. Can they have, can they be? Definitely. Because as, as Tofiq Hamid pointed out, he lives in the West and he did this book on Islamic reform. The internet is open. These brave individuals who are making the efforts, and by the way, psychologically getting stoned from all sides, they are part of it. I wouldn't be here at the beginning of it. They were the ones that were were educating the public as to what's happening. So are they needed in the West, which is a separate question? Mm. Definitely. I'm not a believer that you take people, you use all the information they have, and then you throw them away. Have a little bit of a heart. Now, there are those that say, oh, this one can't be trusted, this one can't be trusted. Well, of course, you've got people in the Muslim Brotherhood that smiles at you, and they're great with you. And can they be trusted? No. But the point of the matter is, can they be under control? Absolutely. Once you do not give in to these organized Muslim Brotherhood groups, their tenets of blasphemy and offense, 
but they shouldn't be here as organizations because they're expansions mm. of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, I know I deviated a bit from your question, but the reason I did so is because none of us have this psychic lens to be able to determine what is in somebody's heart. Yeah. That book gives a direction on what to look for when you're trying to figure out who is a moderate, who's a reformist. How do you know if you can, with some measure of knowledge, um, what are some of the characters, characteristics or questions you could ask? Robert Spencer, by the way, gave a write-up on that as well. And, mm -hmm. and he did appreciate what was in it in terms of the revelations that a person that knows little about it can understand. Yeah. But in terms of Islamic reform coming from here, the influence can come from reformists here, definitely. But the Islamic reform, when we look at it from the point of view of institutions and countries, that could only change from those countries that are the keepers of Islam with the influencers living in the West. Mm -hmm. We already have our free constitution. We're not the ones in need of reform here. We have it already. We don't need Islamic reform. Mm. Muslims need Islamic reform. Those institutions need to be reformed. And the Muslim reformers, their voice is important for education and to actually stoke reform in those countries. Now, if they were to go to those countries, they would be killed as apostates. So what does that tell you about Islam being a religion of peace? Yeah. Their brand might be, but the institutional brand Absolutely not. Um, Christine, can we just circle back to your book as we finish? And I assume we've different people on, written different books, and I'm assuming that you had a lot of backlash on this from different sources. I'm wondering, because you, you got in the middle of a debate that is happening within Islam and opened it up to, I guess, a Western audience that may not be aware that this is happening. And I'm just curious if you can let us know when this was published, uh, what what happened? Did you get opposition from sources you didn't expect or what, was the response from the public what you thought it would be? What, yeah, what, what happened when it came out? I got the, ex uh, first of all, I want to say I survived a program called the Savage Nation with 10 million listeners a week and I am happy. This guy put me on Michael Savage for an hour and grilled me. So there was nothing that I heard that I didn't expect. You get it from all sides. You get it from all sides. But one thing I didn't quite expect, there was a Christian group that put up on a website, Christine Douglas Williams, she's evil. She's so evil. <laughs> she's, she's putting a pretty face on Islam. No, I'm not. Normative Islam is not peaceful. And, and we need to highlight what the problems are. Mm -hmm. We need to stand up for the persecuted. We need to and point out the truth. So that was kind of a little unexpected. But I, I, I really have to say, I expected to get it from all sides. And that's what I did. I got it from the right. I got it from the left. Yep. And I got fired from the left. I, there are those on the right that don't believe it at all. They, they don't want to hear about it. Oh, they respect your right to talk about it, but they will grill you. I survived the grillings. I was ganged up on on shows. There was one show where they said it was going to be me. Next thing you know, they kept on the lawyer they had on before. They kept they invited on another one, and they ganged up to try to put me on the spot. And, hey, I'm game. I understand this is a very complex topic, but I do have concerns and warnings about the West. We need to stand up in dignity Stand up in authority for your own constitutions. The problems of the Muslim world should not have entered Western soil. Now that it did, we blame ourselves for allowing it. And now that it's here, we fight 
for our democracy. And that is the best thing that we could do. If we choose to go beyond it, that is our personal business. But that is my general rule of thumb when it comes to this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think we'll bring it into finish. There are a load of other areas I'd like to open up. Maybe sometime later in the year we can go through them because your your book does open up. And as I said, it was uh, a book that I have underlined more than I think any I have certainly in the last two years. And there is a lot for me <laughs> well, to I go am back and unpack. <laughs> so. And you got through pretty quick, Peter. <laughs> Not absolutely, but it's it's been fantastic listening to the voices of those who within Islam yes. want to see change. Um, and you you hear their um, cries and their passion and their frustration. Yes. You hear that coming out in the interview. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank um, you so much. So I will, again, Christine, you can find her on Jihad Watch and <clears throat> different places, but Jihad Watch is where she regularly writes. So I'll encourage you, our viewers, to go and have a look at Jihad Watch. So, Christine, let me just finish off with our viewers. Don't disappear just yet. Let me finish off with them. Uh, thank you so much for watching. You will uh, see this on Thursday, the, what, the 15th. Um, and what we have coming up, is on Saturday, we have Neil McRae doing our normal weekly news review. And on Monday, the 19th, we have a non-YouTube one. We have Diana West coming back and looking at the US elections. And we discussed it. And as we discussed it, I said to her, this is not going to be YouTube friendly, is it? She goes, no. So she wants to go full on. So um, that will be on all the other platforms, on Rumble, on BitChute, on the website, uh, on VK, Facebook, everywhere else. But it won't be on Gab TV, but not on YouTube. And then on the Thursday, the 22nd, is Philip DeVinter joining us, looking at Islam and immigration. So um, looking forward to Philip, who is a member of the Belgian Parliament. So I think that's about all we have coming up. Um, Christine, thank you so much for your time. It's fascinating. It's been really fun reading the book and also challenging you face to face. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Um, and uh, thank you to our viewers. Have a good rest of your Thursday evening into your weekend. I hope you're enjoying our first week of lockdown freedom. Uh, I don't know if you've gone to the hairdressers or gone for a pint or what you've done to celebrate our newfound freedom in the UK. But I hope you've uh, enjoyed that and benefited from catching up with some friends. So thank you so much for watching. Do make sure and subscribe and like whichever platform you're watching this on. And also make sure you go and to the website and click on that connect button so you can keep in touch with us and get our weekly emails uh, that come out telling you upcoming programs and other events. So I will use that more and more as we're released out of lockdown more and more. Uh, we will use that to keep you posted on events coming up. So thank you so much for watching and have a good evening. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.